0: The favorite for the Kentucky Derby, Omaha Beach, has finally returned to the barn of Richard Mandela. We'll get a progress update from the trainer. Plus, what if racing through a party and nobody came? At least, no one to help out with the horses. How the U.S.'s latest immigration rules are affecting racing. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. Wayway silent. Damn,
1: they're off. as they move to the top of Australia. It's a hit by me.
0: This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. He's back. Omaha Beach
1: and Improbable are 1-2 as they run towards the top of the stretch in the Arkansas Derby. Omaha Beach, three-quarters of a length. Improbable attacks on the outside, and these two have sprinted three lengths clear of long-range toddies. Omaha Beach is now a length in front. Improbable gonna try him one more time. Omaha Beach! Improbable to the outside. Omaha Beach just won't let him buy yet. Improbable second. Omaha
0: Beach. Yes. In the run up to the Kentucky Derby, all the talk was how Omaha Beach was working up a storm. He would go out alongside a workmate named Cowboy Karma, overtake that horse in the stretch, and open up on him. Well, Cowboy Karma won the opener at Churchill Downs on Derby Day which, of course, flattered Omaha Beach. Except that the morning line favorite for the big one spent derby day recovering from throat surgery the day before. As you may know, Omaha Beach suffered an entrapped epiglottis on the Wednesday before the race. The epiglottis is the little flap of skin at the back of your throat. Yes, you have one just like the horse, and it makes sure that your food doesn't go down your windpipe and that your breath doesn't end up in your stomach. Omaha Beach's epiglottis was caught in a couple of folds of skin in his throat and wouldn't move, so he needed minor surgery. Nothing life-threatening, not even career-threatening, but he had to sit out the Derby dust-up and everything that followed. The winner of the Arkansas Derby and the Rebel Stakes, both of which involved beating formidable opponents trained by Bob Bamford, is now back in California in the barn of Richard Mandela. So let's say we get a progress report on the horse I still voted as number one in the NTRA three-year-old poll by welcoming back to win the gate Hall of Fame trainer Richard Mandela. So how's the big colt doing?
1: Doing very well. As you, you all know, we had to do a procedure to split his epiglottis that was entrapped. Doing that, the tissue became inflamed and swollen. And it took quite a while for it to go down, usually not quite as long as what it took. But the good news is it's in great shape now, and he's started back to the track.
0: Now, those in the sport know that nothing that happened during the Triple Crown, the Maximum Security DQ and Bodie Express tossing his rider at the start of the Preakness, none of this is new if you follow racing all year long, nor is it unusual to scratch a horse before a race, of course. But... Not every horse is the Kentucky Derby Morning Line favorite. What was it like to have to scratch Omaha Beach?
1: Um, it was an easy decision to make. It was no difficulty in that. I wouldn't have put him out there to try and run with that. It was just tough living with the disappointment, but we horse trainers have plenty of experience with that.
0: Now, the Colts owner, Rick Porter of Fox Hill Farm, I believe used a hyperbaric chamber among other things to help omaha beach heal despite how long it took how many of your horses make use of high-tech tools like that
1: uh that's the first one i've actually used the hyperbaric chamber but it it seemed to help so it is it is a useful tool but i don't know that much about it you'd probably better ask one of the younger guys that knows more
0: (laughs) (laughs) what will you be looking for from omaha beach to tell you that he's healed feeling good and on the right track
1: uh just the obvious he's you know just starting to jog a little bit and he'll end up galloping for a while we'll get a little short breeze and what we'll be looking for is and praying that there's no disturbance in his wind which we don't suspect because it looks great so we don't expect any problem but in this business, you never know.
0: Hall of Fame trainer Richard Mandela joins us here on In the Gate. Now, you also train United, who finished second to Marquis Water and the Charlie Whittingham on the turf back in late May. What is next for United?
1: Not sure yet. We're waiting for Delmar. We might look at the Eddie Reed stake, or we might look at another allowance race. But I'm more interested to wait for the longer mile and a quarter and further races, I think, is what would bring the best out in him. Thinking of the Delta handicap that's a mile and three-eighths on the turf, maybe the Arlington Million, if we can get another good race in him, we'll just have to see.
0: You have a longer view of this sport than many others in your position, having been out on your own as a trainer, 45 years. How do you assess the situation at Santa Anita in light of all your experience in this sport?
1: If somebody had asked me to dream up what would be going on in the future, they would have never dreamed that, that we'd be in this position. Uh Santa Anita is deservedly named the Great Race Place nickname. Just some terrible things happened here this winter. Uh we could go all day about whose fault it was or where to lay the blame and and would serve no real purpose. The matter of fact is everybody in this business, from the bottom to the top, needs to pull together and try to figure a way out of it, because we could be putting the whole racing industry in
0: jeopardy. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Let's just get one more quickie on Omaha Beach. Wirk Porter, his owner, is based in the East. I'm sure he's whispered to you, any chance we could have him back to run at Saratoga? What chance do you give that could happen?
1: Could happen. (laughs) once we see a nice workout then we'll start figuring out what the plan would be but saratoga would be a serious consideration
0: well we certainly wish you the best of luck moving forward with him and thank you so much for a few minutes mr mandela my pleasure thank you we're going to take a short break here on in the gate but when we come back how the immigration rules in the united states are putting a significant crimp in the horse racing business don't go away Welcome back to In The Gate. Last year on this show, we talked about how horsemen were very wary and borderline afraid of potential surprise raids by United States immigration officials. Well, the raids didn't quite materialize, but neither did the number of workers needed to care for all these racehorses. And the problem is now evolving, as has been detailed recently in the Thoroughbred Daily News. Many of the grooms that care for the horses come from other countries, Are all of those workers documented? That's debatable, but while last year the fear was raids, it appears that the new fear now is what's called worksite inspections. How different is a worksite inspection from a raid? Why are the numbers of available workers so low, and what does all this mean for racing now? To get a sense of the real implications for the sport, we welcome back to Win the Gate Will Veely, a lawyer in Oklahoma who specializes in visas for people involved in sports and performing arts, among other things. Let's start with the big question. Why are there so few available workers, many of whom come from other countries?
2: Well, the big answer, the long-term answer, is that the United States has shifted away from being an agrarian society. And... With that, we've lost touch with a lot of our roots that was working outside, working with with animals, and you couple that with a really strong economy and the work conditions of a horseman. There are plenty of Americans who love to work with horses and and would do it regardless of the job conditions, but the economy today is 4% unemployment, practically full employment, and a lot of Americans don't find any interest in getting up six days a week at 5 a.m. And, and working a split shift and coming back in the afternoon to feed horses. So you do have the Americans that do it for the love of it, but there's not enough. And so what we've relied on in the past is a combination of functional Im- immigration programs. To, while, say, the, you know, the elephant in the room, for a long time there was a lot of uh, people that were not documented that were working on the track. Well, you couple a really strong employment set of circumstances plus a strong enforcement posture and the extra workers that used to be there are gone both american and the people that used to walk barn to barn who may or may not have papers and the trainers would just wouldn't ask them but those those days are behind us a lot of people have left the country a lot of people are not going to go to places that are not urban because they feel like they will stick out and they'll be they'll be identified and picked up for little or no you know crimes And so you've got the the rural places, you know, I think of places like Shelbyville or places like Prairie Meadows or Canterbury that are outside of towns where the workers just, they won't go. We've had the same issues with Saratoga. So, you know, it's just a combination of a set of circumstances that have led us to a position where, along with other industries, it's almost an existential challenge to stay in business when you have 80 head of horses and you have the people that you were counting on aren't there. So there's three or four of you that are mucking out all the barns and washing the horses and cooling the horses. And and it's just it's that situation that has become uh, very challenging for the industry.
0: And to your point, as of April, the unemployment rate in this country stood at 3.6%, where in 2010, during the height of the economic recession, the rate was 10%. Now, the other factor, of course, is immigration enforcement. The main type of work visa that workers from other countries use is called an H-2B visa. The federal government has put a cap on the total number of these visas available nationwide at 66,000. That's not just for racing people. That's everyone. So how much does this affect the numbers for racing?
2: Well, absolutely. And and there's two H-2 visas. The H-2A is an agricultural visa, and there is no quota. They do about 500,000 agricultural visas a year. And then the labor corollary is called the H-2B. So H-2A is ag, H-2ag, and H-2B is labor. Way back in history, Department of Labor determined that horse racing on the track is labor and not agricultural and so we are given this arbitrarily drawn number of 66,000 you know in a in a good month we'll add 180,000 jobs to the job market and, and the the unemployment rate will decrease by 0.1%, you know something like that. So we're talking about 66,000 visas which would be maybe 0.03% of a point on the unemployment scale. So this is a, an arbitrarily low number. The way that the visas are set up is that there's 33,000 visas for the fall, which ski slopes, Florida resorts, and some of the southern tracks like Gulfstream, Fairgrounds, Turf Paradise, uh, they do compete for those. And then there's a second allocation in April. Everything is done on the fiscal year. October 1st is the the first allocation of 33,000 visas, and then April 1st is the second. In April, the number of applications that were submitted for the 33,000 remaining visas was right around 98,000. So if you did everything perfectly and you filed right at the stroke of midnight and didn't miss a beat, you had about a one in three chance of your visas getting picked and you getting through the quota. Now, in the... Congress, to their credit, they did pass a part of the Department of Homeland Security funding bill. They passed a provision that increased the number of visas to 66,000. There was some gamesmanship. Speaker Pelosi insisted that the language didn't say must issue an additional 66,000 visas. It said the White House may issue. So she did that, at least I think, so that The president would have to carry some water on increasing the number of visas, given that his rhetoric is usually so strongly anti-immigration. So what was passed for us in January, which would have taken care of the entire 65,000 visas that we needed, sat on a table in the executive office from January until the end of May. So it took five months. And when they finally decided to issue visas, what they said was, we're going to not give you 66,000, which Congress authorized, we're going to give 33,000 and yes your your season started april 1st and it's now almost june 1st and we're going to give you half the number that you need so we got something it's way better than nothing we're still filtering our guys through the consulate right now and so we have we still have june through december which is 6 of the of the 10 months that we were hoping for but we did lose a couple of you know really important months for for a lot of the people that participate in the program
0: another change from last year At this time last year, we were talking about raids from the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Bureau. Now we're talking about worksite inspections. What is the difference?
2: Great question. Great question, Perry. Okay, so worksite enforcement has risen by a factor of sevenfold. There were... Roughly in twenty sixteen about a thousand enforcement operations on the ground and in this last year there were over seven thousand. So the number is increased dramatically. What enforcement is versus a raid is essentially who the target is. If the target is the workers, then they're gonna come out, they're gonna go to all the workers and they're going to check their papers. I'll give you an example. There was a track in the Midwest that shared their fingerprints with ICE. Uh, each, Every every groom, every person had to share fingerprints. Anybody that had any type of infraction that required fingerprints, so that would include driving without a driver's license. If you're on document, you can't have a driver's license. Or, you know, more serious, but mostly just infractions. Anybody that had infraction that showed up on the fingerprinting uh, was picked up. That would have been a raid, and that was a raid. Enforcement is where uh, administrative officials come out from ICE and ask to see your payroll records, your what are called I-9 documents. An I-9 document is every employer must keep individual I-9 for each worker, uh, showing that they verified that they have uh, they have documents that authorize them to work legally in the United States. So ICE will come out. They'll say you've got 72 hours to turn over your payroll records plus your I-9s, and they will go through those if they see uh, a pattern of noncompliance. A lot of times, I, I always explain this to uh, the attorneys working for ICE, you know, the horse trainers are great with horses. They're not always that great with paperwork. Um, <laughs> if you see that the the violations are document violations, they're not they're not employing undocumented workers. They just didn't fill out their paperwork correctly. Usually, if it's something like that, I can you know try to try to get uh, it either dismissed, which happens sometimes, or or reduced. If they see a further pattern, then they may come in with uh, wage an hour and they may come in with IRS, and it just depends on what the set of patterns is and and if it rises to a a much bigger enforcement. And I know that there's been some pretty dramatic uh, enforcement news out there lately, and so our industry is amongst a lot of other industries that are just feeling the pinch of uh, the immigration priorities of the administration, which is to go after anything related to immigration, essentially.
0: Well, how urgent an issue is this right now?
2: It's a very urgent issue, and it's one that you know that we're walking through a little bit of you know terra incognita. We don't know exactly where it's coming and, and where it's going to hit. A lot of a lot of what we can do is just educate our trainers to make sure that they keep their compliance side monitor, you know, self-audit once a year. Make sure your I-9s are compliant. I always tell them whenever there's going to be an enforcement, I always go down and talk to the trainers and say, you know, if your I-9s are tight, you're all right. Just make sure that your I-9s are signed by the worker within three days of starting work that you give them a list of documents as soon as they present you the documents, as long as they look, if they appear reasonably authentic, you've done your job, you can't be the enforcement mechanism and go beyond that, or you'll be uh, actually fined for discrimination. So just take a look at the documents, write down the document identification numbers, put them away, and uh, you have gotta keep those for three years. So, So as long as our trainers maintain that, which is fairly minimal, level of paperwork, you know, compliance, that will take care of 90% of the problems. What happened with some of the trainers in New York was, in my mind, a, you know, just looking at the circumstances, the trainers were being punished for paying their workers on an agricultural model when the state of New York and the Department of Labor determined they should be paying them on an hourly model, and it racked up huge amounts of back pay, wages that had to be paid for overtime that wasn't paid for hours that weren't kept because our trainers, a lot of times they pay per horse. So they'll pay $150 per horse. Each groom has four horses. So they're paid $600 a week. They work split shifts. So usually they don't work more than eight hours a day, but they will come in on Saturdays. And if there's races, they work late at night. So what Department of Labor came in and said is, well, you didn't keep hours. We're going to impute that you had eight hours of overtime, per week per worker for the last three years. And since the H-2B requires that you pay $15 an hour, we're going to say that that's $22, $22.5 per hours for eight hours a week times 80 workers, and all of a sudden you have a $900,000 fine, which is exactly what happened to you know one of the really good trainers that's representing our sport.
0: Right. You're speaking of Chad Brown, and we're talking with Will Veely here on In The Gate, attorney from Oklahoma who deals with a lot of these visas for international workers so i mean if this happens to an eclipse award-winning trainer like chad brown where does that leave other trainers
2: that's a great question it's a great question because you know this sports made up is made up of the you know the high profile trainers but it's made up a lot of a lot of uh, mom and pop who are my favorite trainers you know the they have eight to ten workers and they they have 40 head of horses in you know prairie meadows or shack or uh indiana grand and they have to follow the same rules there have been smaller actions on, you know, smaller, smaller uh, trainers. A lot of times what will trigger it is if somebody files a complaint with Department of Labor for whatever reason, then they come out and look. And once they start looking, they dig. And so I've had some of those where it really has just been misunderstanding. No actual, you know, bad actions have taken place, but, you know, you have to get in front of it and try to diffuse it as quickly as possible. But it, it is a problem. I was talking to a Hot Springs trainer the other day. We just got her workers here, and, you know, she had to move her 50 horses from Hot Springs to Iowa, and, and she's disconsolate about it. She doesn't have her workers yet. No, finally they're here, thank God. But, um, you know, this, these are real problems that, you know, have actual consequences that you can take it out of the newspapers and actually apply it to real-life circumstances.
0: Well, you were referring to it before with get your I-9s in order, but what would you consider for trainers to be best practices when you need workers to help with horses?
2: The the first thing you do when you hire somebody is you make sure that you give them, you can't tell them what documents to give you, but you give them the list and say, I need these documents, I need either one document from what's called list A, which would be a passport, a U.S. passport or two documents, which would be a driver's license versus a Social Security card, which show identity and work authorization. And so you give them the list, and and within three days, you have to fill that out. So that's the first thing. As long as they bring you documents that you have no reason to believe are are not authentic, then you accept those, and and you've done your, your duty under the law. Now, if you can't find workers, there are visa programs we have an advantage in our industry in that we race in the South in the winter, so they're, I'm not going to say it's a trick because it's the law, and we're allowed to follow the law. The Department of Labor takes the position that you can't have a visa need for a year-round visa. So if you're racing year-round at Laurel, you can't have visas for more than 10 months of the year. However since you're racing year-round at Laurel, there's there's a peak need. So you can actually ask for your visas in October, and you know that there's no cap pressure because the industries, you know, don't need visas as much in the winter. So we're able to help our trainers that stay in one place if, if there's year-round racing. If you're in a place like Delaware Park, which is only six months of the year, then that doesn't work. So usually, you know, you're going to probably race in Laurel, and that, that helps. And then the other thing the Department of Labor says is that if you have two distinct locations – then you can actually have two different sets of visas, and you can have your workers on the visas, for example, in Churchill from April to December, and then you can have them at Gulfstream from November to May, and that way you kind of overlap and and those are two separate needs and they don't they don't cancel out your you know temporary need and that way you're not subject to the cap. So we've actually, we've worked with uh, headquarters of immigration several times just to make sure that this is an acceptable interpretation of law, and and we are fortunately, you know, in in a good position with CIS. They understand and and they, they agree with that interpretation. So for our New York trainers and our Kentucky trainers who, you know, they do go to distinct locations, we have been able to figure out a way to get them a legal workforce, a legal workforce, and then it's up to them, of course, to make sure and and follow the the requirements of the visa program, which you know they can be fairly substantial. You have to pay a wage that's much higher than minimum wage. It's for Gulfstream is going to be around thirteen dollars an hour. For New York, it's going to be closer to fifteen dollars an hour, and you have to uh, you know pay travel costs to and from and you have to give them, if you offer 40 hours, you have to give them at least 30 hours over the time of the visa. So there are there are requirements, but in this environment, it's the best solution that we have. It's not ideal by any means, but it's the best solution that we have. Another thing that we've been doing, which has been actually very feel-good, it makes us feel good, is that because the economy is so good, we've been able to show that there is a permanent need for a lot of these workers. So we've been able to take... Quite a few of these H2B workers that have been coming from the year 2000, 2001, 2002, every year, leaving their families back home, coming up here to work for 10 months, and then going home for two months, never knowing if they're going to get a visa the next year, and we've been able to take them to permanent residence, which means that they and their wife and their minor children get permanent residence in the United States. Typically, what that means is that they're still only going to stay the 10 months of the year. They still go home for a couple months of the year, but now they have a permanent residence and they know that you know they can come and go at their discretion.
0: How widespread is that amongst your clients?
2: Well, it hasn't always been possible. and And the reason it hasn't always been possible is that up until a few years ago, there was about a three or four year backlog on the green cards. And now the backlog, except for the countries of India and China, because they they apply for probably three quarters of all the green cards in, in the United of the total allocation. So they're backlog ten years. But for everybody else in the world, there's no backlog. So what was taking three, four, five years is now taking a year before we get to the place where we can file their permanent residence. and at that point, they don't need a visa anymore, they get work authorization, they can stay until the green card's issued six months later. So what used to be a five-year process has taken about a year and a half total now. So it does take, uh, you know, the, the employer does have to help and, you know, does have to affirmatively demonstrate that they tried to find Americans who aren't available, which if you run an ad for 200 people to work at Gulfstream for the winter, you might get three people that respond to the ad. And when you tell them the hours, they just say, no, thank you. And it's all the people that are wanting to work with horses in the United States already are. And I got to I got to give a good endorsement to Groom Elite, which is the, uh, the you know the Horseman Benevolent Protective Association's program that's offered for free in 33 locations to anybody, whether American or not. Anybody who wants to take the Groom Elite course, they can take basic groom, they can take the uh, the groom licensure, they can take assistant trainer. It's offered at all the tracks during the year. Reed McClellan, the veterinarian who runs it goes from track to track offering it. And so they expend a great amount of capital and resources towards trying to find Americans to fill these jobs. That being said, there's just not enough right now. And may, you know, given that our economy is so fundamentally shifted over the last 50 years, may never, you know, we may never have the numbers of people to work in agriculture that are required to, uh, you know, support our industry, but we do everything we can.
0: These are real issues that affect which horses end up on the track running for which trainers based on how much help they have. So we'll continue to monitor this one. But thank you so much, Mr. Beely, for updating us after last year on where we stand with this.
2: Barry, I appreciate the opportunity. It's always a pleasure. I love your show.
0: Our thanks to Will Beely and to Richard Mandela. If some is good, then more is better, doesn't apply to everything. Do you really want to grow your to-do list? But when it comes to data used to handicap a horse race, wouldn't you want some more to read with your breakfast? For reasons only known to those who publish the Racing Post, the European equivalent of the form, they only publish the final time of a race, but not each sector, while here in the States, the fractional times are the norm. I'm guessing that the reason the Racing Post won't change its ways is by doing so they'd fully have to admit that for all these years they denied their readers valuable information and you don't want loyal customers in a smith. So as you watch Royal Ascot with its pomp and circumstance and a royal presence we could never match, just remember we have something big the Europeans don't, more data to crunch, available by the batch